There we are. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, we've got Zach and Panina with us. That's wonderful. Greetings and welcome. Welcome back. Um, the title that I've got on the top of my sermon is The Covert Ministry of Jesus, which doesn't sound as exciting as Global Revolution. Uh, but um, yeah, I've probably been a little bit confused along the way as to what I, what, uh, what, what I was actually going to entitle this sermon. But we can work on that later. Um, what we know is that a Christian is somebody, someone who puts their faith in Jesus of Nazareth as Son of God, Messiah, Christ, Lord and Saviour. Um, let's start there. That's a, a basic thing. That's not too hard. But one of the mysteries of being a Christian is understanding exactly in what way Jesus is Lord. It's kind of the lordship of, of Jesus is kind of both obvious and hidden at the same time. How are his saving purposes being worked out in this world? Well, today we continue uh, to work through one of the longest single conversations recorded in the Bible. It is uh, the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples the night before he was crucified. And uh, as we saw last week, if you were with us, at this point in time, Jesus is the focus of a Q&A session, a question and answer time. And last week we looked at uh, four questions that were asked in quick succession. And we looked at what Jesus had to say in response. Today, let's look at a fifth question, verse 22. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Uh, well, this is the other Judas. Uh, let's, uh, to avoid confusion, let's call him Jude. Um, none of us, of course, can be 100% sure as to what Jude is asking, nor what has prompted this question for him. However, Jesus has just been talking about how they're about to enter a season, a time, a set time period, during which the world will no longer be able to see Jesus. But the disciples will be able to see Jesus. Jesus will ask the Father, and the Father will send them the Holy Spirit, the Advocate, the Spirit of Truth. The disciples will know the Spirit because he lives in them and he will be with them. But the world will not be able to accept or recognize the Spirit because the world neither sees him nor knows him. So then, the one who loves Jesus keeps Jesus' commands and Jesus will love them too and show himself to them. There's a lot in that. But we can see now, I guess, that Jude is confused about why Jesus is, is going to continue to show himself to his disciples, but secretly, as it were, or in a covert fashion, not showing himself to the world. Uh, Jude, in his question, he uses exactly the same verb that Jesus has just used in his final statement. Euphemizo, to exhibit, manifest, explain, inform. 
Jude's question then, in some ways echoes the cry of all of our hearts, of all of God's people from the very beginning of time. Why is the lordship of God manifest in Christ? Why is it, why is it hidden from the world? Why doesn't God just suddenly silence all opposition, all seeking, all confusion, all doubt for all time by just revealing himself powerfully and unequivocally in completely unmistakable and undeniable ways? Why doesn't he just do that? That'd be great. Why aren't you going to show yourself to the world? Why, indeed, do the plans of evil men continue to succeed? Why does the pitiless randomness of this chaotic world continue to, imitate, to, sorry, to, to intimidate and destroy? Lord Jesus, we know that you are Lord. Why not just reveal yourself to the world? Jesus uh, responds to this question in verses 23 to 31, the text that Andrea has just read to us. And once again, Jesus responds fulsomely, but perhaps enigmatically. It is not entirely clear to me how Jesus answers Jude's question. If Jude's question is, why not show yourself to the world, then Jesus comes closest to directly answering that concern at the very end of this speech, verses 30 and 31, because it's there that Jesus uses the word world. Something is about to happen that will enable the world to learn. Enable the world to learn that Jesus loves the Father and does exactly what his Father has commanded him. And he is, of course, talking about the cross. The world and the satanic forces at play in the world, the powers and authorities, both human and spiritual, that are currently, at this point in time, conspiring to murder Jesus on a cross, those forces have no power over Jesus. But Jesus will submit to them out of love for the Father, who has commanded this course of action. Jesus will do this for the world and in front of the world. And this is extraordinary. The cross, we learn again, the, the, the cross shows the world everything God wants the world to know about God. The cross is the most revealing thing that God can do. We know indeed that the lamb was, this lamb, the lamb was slain from the creation of the world, Revelation 13, 8. And this means that for us, whenever we might find ourselves in any kind of discussion about who God is and what he is like, we cannot fail but to mention the cross. At one point or another, Jesus on the cross. God's glory, God's perfect revelation to the world. But this is the, the last thing that Jesus 
says in response to Jude's question, what else did Jesus say to get there? Well, at first glance, Jesus' response uh, to Jude seems to be that he's repeating pretty much, he's just repeating what he's already said. The, the one who, who loves Jesus will obey his teaching. The one who loves Jesus will be loved by Jesus and the Father, and they will come to, to them, and the Father will send the Holy Spirit, the Advocate. Looking closer, we see that Jesus, uh, he, he's repeating some stuff that he's just taught, but he's also adding, he, there's embellishment. We learn more about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, verse 26. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, uh, with respect to um, the disciples uh, reclining there at table uh, with Jesus on that evening, his disciples who have traveled with Jesus since the very beginning, since the days of John the Baptist, since, uh, um, uh, uh, since the start of his, of his public ministry, these words prophesy, I think, the creation of the thing that we know as the New Testament. When Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, for example, no one was taking notes, as far as we know. And Jesus himself never wrote anything down that we know of. But as the church grew and grew after Jesus ascended into heaven, the need for things to be written down grew and grew. The Holy Spirit would both remind the disciples as to all they'd seen and heard, and give them revelation and wisdom in new situations, giving us in time the four Gospels, the book of Acts, the letters to the churches, the book of Revelation, the, the New Testament. So then, those disciples, they moved forward armed with two things. Their memories, individual and collective and shared, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. In this is fulfilled Christ's words, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In consequence, we too move forward armed with two things. The memories and, and teaching, the New Testament, the Bible, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. In this is fulfilled Christ's words, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Holy Spirit truly is our teacher because his teaching is not his own. It comes from him who sent him, the Father, who always brings into focus his Son. The Holy Spirit speaks into our hearts, reminding us of what Jesus said and giving us wisdom as we ask for it, giving us insight into how to apply God's word in this situation or that situation. The Bible is most certainly the written word of God and the Holy Spirit is most certainly essential. Without the Spirit, the Bible is useless. Without the Bible, we cannot discern between spirits and we are sheep to the slaughter, vulnerable to wolves. Jesus follows that thought immediately with verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. 
I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Um, when we think of peace, we tend to think either of peace as the absence of war and conflict, or we tend to think of peace as a feeling, the absence of fear, worry, and anxiety, perhaps indeed positively a feeling of security and well-being. In the Bible, peace, or shalom, as it is in Hebrew, is all of these things, but actually it's so much more. It is wholeness and health. It is things working as they should do. It is being in right relationship with God the Father, with one another, and with the creation around us. That's shalom. And all of these promises are yes in Christ Jesus our Lord. But it's not a simplistic download the app and you're good kind of a thing. It's, it's not very unusual. It's not uncommon to hear Christians who experience the peace of Christ um, as a profound sense of eternal security, perhaps at a time when they're suddenly confronted by extremely bad news. Um, the diagnosis that you don't want to hear or terrible news. And somebody might say, yet yeah, I, I nevertheless had this extraordinary sense of God's peace. The peace that Christ gives is the, is the knowledge that the Lord reigns and that the Lord is good. We can trust and just trust, no matter what storms there are on the horizon or indeed rage around us. The Lord reigns and we can trust. But of course the world can offer no similar guarantee or, or, or thought or answer or hope. But this settled conviction that we at times might experience very, very strongly, this settled conviction does need to be guarded and tended. We find it easy to be troubled and afraid. If we didn't, Jesus would not have needed to say, do not let your hearts be troubled, do not be afraid. So then, the peace that Christ gives removes troubling fear. But it is not a simple download the app and you're good kind of a thing. We need to cooperate with the Spirit and with the Word of God, internalizing the external Word, meditating on it, chewing it over, swallowing, believing. Um, at the beginning, for about three or four years now, um, at the beginning of every year, a friend of mine in the United Kingdom sends me a list of scriptures, Bible verses, one Bible verse for every week in the year. And they're all, do not fear, Bible verses. To remind me every morning of every week of every month of the entire year that I don't need to be afraid, for the Lord is, is, is good. Uh, so it's good to be reminded, as we often say, because I need to be reminded. Uh, I, I need to meditate on that. I need to be reminded What, what Jesus is telling his disciples is, is actually very good news. They, they ought to be happy uh, at what Jesus is saying, glad that Jesus is returning to the Father. 
we've understood from the beginning of this gospel that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This becoming flesh was in every way a humiliation for the eternal Son of God. A humiliation that, in perfect fulfillment, climaxed in his death on a cross. The return of the Word made flesh to the Father from whom he came is a return to shalom, just the way things ought to be. And therefore, the most excellent of things to be celebrated wholeheartedly. The Father is greater than the Son, insofar as the Incarnation has required the words to be limited in all of the ways that human beings are limited, but God isn't. So then, Jesus has responded to the question from Jude, why is the Lordship of God in Christ Jesus to be manifest to Christ's disciples but hidden from the world? Jesus has responded to the question rather perhaps than answering the question, at least directly. And indeed, uh, this is true to form for Jesus. He always responds to questions. He never reacts. He always responds. He doesn't always answer. He doesn't always answer the question, but he always responds to the question. It is right and proper that we too ask Jesus whatever questions we might have in our hearts and on our minds. We can ask Jesus whatever we want to ask him. But Christ is not beholden to us. He doesn't owe us an answer. In his goodness, we can always expect a response and one that meets our need. In his response, he might choose not to answer. This will be through the Holy Spirit, our teacher, teaching us all things and reminding us of everything Jesus taught his first disciples. As John, uh, our author, as John says elsewhere in another one of his writings, he, he, he teaches us the anointing we received when we were baptized with the Holy Spirit remains in us so that we don't need, we don't need anyone to teach us. But as his anointing teaches us all things, and just as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just has been taught to us, we so we remain in Christ. And all of this is a, a, a wonderful thing. It's, it's in fulfillment to, to what the Old Testament prophets saw. That, uh, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied, uh, chapter 31, verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their, in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And as Jesus taught his disciples, You're not to call anyone rabbi, for you have one teacher. You're not to call anyone Father, for you have one Father, your Father in heaven. 
and you're not to call anyone instructor because you have one instructor, the Messiah. So for us, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Spirit is the presence of Jesus. He is with us and he is in us. Even though Jesus is absent, he's right here right now. Why is the Lordship of God manifest to Christ's disciples but hidden from the world? Well, I guess it is and it isn't. There's nothing hidden at the cross. That's God manifest, exhibited, explained, revealed in all his glory to the world. But the meaning of it is hidden, except to those to whom God reveals it. And when that happens, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And in that revelation, a disciple is born. The ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ on earth was extraordinary. Miracles, signs and wonders, teaching and understanding and wisdom like never before and never again. Nevertheless, it was limited. Limited by the limitations of the incarnation, the word becoming flesh. Jesus could only ever be in one place at one time. He could not, of course, minister in Capernaum and Jerusalem simultaneously. As in fact, of course, he can now. Now he is going, the world will see him no more. Is this retrenchment? Is this defeat? Is this tragic? No, the son will be with the father, just as he ought to be. This is cause for great excitement and rejoicing, for praise and worship. Furthermore, the world will no longer see Jesus in person. But this is because Jesus is going global. And this is cause for great excitement and rejoicing, for praise and for worship. Jesus will continue his ministry through the Holy Spirit through the disciples, and it will be unlimited in comparison with the limitations of Christ's incarnate ministry. This ministry will use the New Testament as a foundation. It will preach peace to the nations, and it will continually focus on Jesus on the cross as the pivotal moment in the history of the world in which God revealed himself in full glory. And to him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen.